0: Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at Bethelpbc.us. i read to you this morning from the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, reading verses 12 to 17. Wherefore, lift up the hands that hang down, and the feeble knees... or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, for you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. A great deal of contemporary Christianity, I would say today, is individualistic. I mean, many people approach the Bible with the question, what does this verse mean to me? Instead of the question, what does this verse mean? Now, please don't misunderstand me this morning. Christian faith is intensely personal. Psalm 23, one says, the Lord is my shepherd. And it's not wrong to claim a personal interest or to seek a personal interest in The Lord's mercies and grace. Galatians 2 20 Paul said he loved me and gave himself for me and it is a fact that a person is beginning to grow spiritually when they cease to think of religion as something purely abstract and they begin to personalize it. You know when Jesus said what do men say about me the son of man whom do men say that I the son of man am Matthew 16, 16. He's asking what is public opinion. And by the way, that is all over the map, isn't it? Some say you're Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Some one of the prophets. But here's the question that matters. Whom say ye that I am? What do you say? What do you think about Jesus? Yes, indeed, Christian faith is intensely and fundamentally personal. But it's never supposed to be individualistic. I suspect that that statement may come as a surprise to many in our world today who've been taught to look at the Bible as a kind of grab bag of inspirational quotes to promote their own spiritual fulfillment and happiness. You know, these are my verses, somebody says, and I go through them for my own peace and happiness. And as our selfie pop culture, with its narcissistic focus, On promoting your own personal brand and growing your individual social media following has prevailed. It has only poured fuel on the fire of this natural bent we have toward individualism. It's not uncommon these days for even Christian people to forge ahead to carve out a personal ministry niche or to start a new church built around some maverick's personality. Instead, my friends, you and I have been redeemed for community. Jesus Christ saved us for the corporate body of the church. And the entire New Testament emphasizes that the Christian life is a matter of living with a corporate, not an individual focus. You remember when Jesus taught us to pray? How did he say that we should begin those prayers? My Father who's in heaven? No, our Father. Notice the collective pronoun our Father. And throughout that model prayer, you see that collective pronoun over and again, you know, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, and lead us. So you and I need to learn, I believe, to think of ourselves as part of a community, to live, if you please, with a corporate, not an individual, focus. Even our text in Hebrews chapter 12 begins in verses 1 and 2 with this collective pronoun, let us run the race with patience, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So I would ask you today, dear friends, if you see yourself as a part of something bigger than myself, I'm living for a cause. That corporate focus, I think, is vitally important. We see it explained in a hymn that we sing sometimes in our hymnal, number 184. Would you listen to the lyrics? I love thy kingdom, Lord. Here's what Mr. Dwight says. Lord, your kingdom, your church is what I love. The house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I wonder if you and I can identify with Mr. Dwight's language here. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, and graven on thy hand. Now listen to his commitment to the church. It's not just a lone ranger, personal, or individual kind of focus, but he is living for the church. For her, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers ascend. To her, my cares and toils will be given until toil and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways. Her sweet communion and solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. That's the thought. And I think that is clear in the passage that we've read and you're hearing this morning. This principle of living with a corporate or a collective focus, seeing our lives in terms of the larger body of the church, not necessarily seeing the church is there to serve us. Let me illustrate what I'm trying to say this morning like this. If I were a coach of a football team, and I had one player that after practice stayed to do extra reps and extra drills, and who put in you know time going the extra mile, I would have no problem with that. He's doing it on his own, and I'm glad that he's working on his individual skills. You know, in addition to what we've done as a team, he's trying to do more. I would have no problem with that as his coach. What I would have a problem with is if he failed to show up for the game. And I think you and I should do extra work in our Christian lives throughout the course of the week. We should read our Bibles. We should pray. We should individually walk with the Lord. And try to reach out and minister to others and do what we can to bear one another's burdens. But I think it's important for us to think of the extra work that we put in each week to pray and read our Bible and to minister to others as training for the game on Lord's Day morning. Instead of thinking of going to church as preparation for me to get through the week... The goal of the individual believer should be to live during the weeks so that we may come and contribute to the edifying of the body on the Lord's day. Our individual lives, my point is this morning, are intended to contribute to the corporate worship of God in the church. Now, this is a very foreign kind of mindset, again, in the me culture. That's what Newsweek magazine called our generation some years back, the me generation, the selfie generation. You know, this idea of living for something larger than yourself, living for something that is more important than the individual, this corporate focus is a very strange idea to many people today. Now, with that thought in mind, I want to look at the text I've read in your hearing today And this passage gives us four areas in which this collective mindset should translate into our lives. If you and I are going to live with a corporate focus instead of just an individual Lone Ranger mindset, it means, number one, we should be ready and involved in encouraging the weary. Verse 12, Wherefore, that is, therefore, lift up the hands that hang down. Now, He's just been talking in the previous verses about running the Christian race. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And he says we're to run this race looking unto Jesus. Jesus is the watershed of history. I wonder if you know what a watershed is. Back in the agricultural days, they would build a structure, and in order to protect it, they would put up a steeply pitched roof. It's an architectural term called a watershed, so that when it rained, it would protect, say, the cows feed or the chicken feed or, you know, their bedding area. It would protect it so that the rain would hit and run off on each side. It was called a watershed. And the Lord Jesus Christ, my beloved, is the watershed of history. In other words, the Old Testament anticipated the Lord Jesus coming. But you and I live on this side of the cross as the old testament anticipated the coming of jesus we live in retrospect of the cross he has come he has redeemed us and even though we're continuing the race of faith that goes back even to abel as chapter 11 of hebrews tells us and enoch and noah even though we've taken the baton of truth from old testament saints and as the church we are running the anchor leg in the relay you and i run in the knowledge that redemption has occurred So the law and the Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonies are no longer necessary because the reality has come. The shadow has been done away in favor of the substance. Jesus Christ is the watershed of history. So we're to run this race looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus is the trailblazer of the Christian religion, the Christian faith. We're following him, are we not? And as we follow him, it's not an easy path. It's a long-distance race. It requires great agony and rigor and sometimes troubles and trials. You know, on the way to the goal, there are many pitfalls and struggles along the way, and we need to learn to look at those as the father's child training, that he's using the circumstances of our lives to grow us, to make us stronger. I don't think I'd be exaggerating to tell you this morning that I've never learned any really important lesson in my life except through the school of suffering and affliction. Every truly important lesson I've ever learned in my life has not come in a classroom or when things were smooth sailing, when the sky was clear and, you know, the the winds were calm and the sun was shining. Most of the important lessons I've learned in my life have come through hardship, trial and difficulty. Is that true for you? How do you build muscle? Do you build muscle by sitting in your easy chair and eating bonbons and watching ESPN? No, you build muscle by getting out and doing push-ups and doing some road work and, you know, s- straining. And I suggest my beloved that the stresses and strains of our lives have been sanctified if we've improved upon them, if we've had the right attitude about them, instead of rebelling against it said, "Why are you treating me like this, Lord?" instead of despising the chastening of the Lord, and instead of growing discouraged and saying, oh, all I have are troubles and nothing ever works out right, instead of giving up, we've said, Lord, thank you for loving me enough to teach me. If that's been your mindset, and that's what Hebrews chapter 12 has been teaching us so far, dear friends, if you've been living this kind of life, the easiest thing in the world is to reach a point where you say, okay, I'm a little bit tired. (laughs) I mean, after you've already been fighting your own battles and trying to grow and learn to be the kind of people God calls you to be, and after you've been trying to help others, it may be that you've reached a point, my friends, that you're just a bit weary and discouraged. And there are others around you who feel the same way. Well, here's what our text is saying here. In the midst of this struggle to live the Christian life, don't forget To be an encourager. Wherefore. Therefore. It's a conclusion. It's a logical conclusion. On the basis of what he's been saying. Therefore lift up the hands that hang down. And confirm the feeble knees. Now this is a quote from the 35th chapter of Isaiah. Would you listen as I read this original quote. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. He's telling us to strengthen the weak hands of others. Confirm the feeble knees. Now, the language is self-explanatory. When you're tired, what happens to your arms? They hang down, don't they? Your hands hang down. Do you remember the story of Moses? While the children of Israel were doing battle, Moses was standing atop the mountain, and while he lifted his hands... Israel prevailed, but you know, you can only keep your hands lifted for so long until they begin to get weary, right? And what happens when you get tired? They begin to droop and to fall, and when his hands fell, the enemy prevailed. So Israel prevailed while his hands were lifted, but when he got weary and his hands fell, the enemy pushed Israel back. So Aaron and Hur stood on each side of Moses and they lifted his hands until the battle was completed and victory was theirs. You see, my friends, each one of us needs each other. We need the help of our brothers and sisters. There is no such thing as a spiritual Lone Ranger. John Wesley said it like this, there is nothing so unchristian as a solitary Christian. The Lord did not save you or me just so you could go at it on your own. He saved us again and redeemed us for community, He intended for us to come into his church and to be a part of serving him with the team, with others. Back to the relay metaphor, you know, passing the baton. That's a team sport. A relay is a team effort. It's not just an individual effort. Each individual must pull their weight if the team as a whole is to prevail. And maybe you're like me and you say, Brother Mike, one of the marks I got in kindergarten was I don't play well with others. And uh, I do better, you know, on, in individual sports. I just do better as an individual. And I am saying this morning, my beloved, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest cause on the face of this earth. And to be a part of that is to give your life real meaning, to give your life real significance. There are so many causes. There are political causes. You know, somebody says, okay, my, this is what I, I'm campaigning on this platform. We're going to preserve our freedoms and our rights. Well, that's a legitimate cause. That's a good cause. Somebody else says, I'm campaigning on the platform. We're going to balance our budget and live within our means. That's a good cause. There are other causes that may not be so good. Somebody says, my cause is to save this particular endangered species but at the same time i have a bumper sticker on my car saying i'm pro-choice there are so many uh people who have that dichotomy in their thinking you know they they want to save the animals but they don't want to save the little children before they are born that's not a, as legitimate a cause as others but you know of all the causes that there are in this world and maybe you have something that's important to you You say, my cause is public health. That's what I'm concerned about. Somebody else says, my cause is recycling. You see this person, that's all they want to talk about. That's the thing that they're the most interested in. My cause is, you know, uh, animal rights. Of all the causes, the greatest cause on the face of this earth is the cause of Christ. As expressed in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, for this cause, I bow my knees. Under the Father, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. And I would ask you today, my beloved, and ask myself, are we concerned enough for the cause of Christ to pray for it? David said, when his brother said, go home, little boy, you're too young to be here on the battlefield. David said, is there not a cause? And in the name of the Lord God of Israel, I will take a stand. His cause was the glory of God. And I want to say this morning, my beloved That the cause of Christ is the most important cause on the face of this earth. It's more important than me as an individual. In fact, the Apostle Paul said I would even personally give up my privileges if it meant that others Could come to understand the gospel. That's what he means in Romans chapter nine, verse one. I could wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's more concerned about the church than he is about himself. And I want to say the church is not about me and it's not about you. The church is bigger than the individual. It's bigger than any one person. It's bigger than the pastor. It's not Michael Gowen's ministries. I'm not trying to promote a legacy to my particular gifts or talents, whatever they are. I'm not trying to perpetuate my influence that somebody says, oh, he had a great personal ministry. My beloved, you and I should live for the health and the welfare of the church. For her, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers shall ascend. And that means that we are willing, even at personal cost to reach out to strengthen the weak hands when others become discouraged my motto is i'm going to serve others there's a song in our hymnal that says others lord yes others let this my motto be help me to live for others and so let me live like thee the happiest people that i've ever known in this world are those who are living for somebody else for others Not the self-centered and the self-focused, but those who are willing to spend and be spent to ease someone else's burden and so to fulfill the law of Christ. Yes, the first way that we live with a corporate focus is by getting involved in encouraging the weary. Strengthen ye the weak hands. I don't think I ever finished quoting that passage in Isaiah. Let me read it. I get to preaching sometimes and forget what I was uh, supposed to be doing. Strengthen ye the weak hands. Now, do you know anybody whose hands are starting to droop? They're weary. And confirm the feeble knees. That is, here's somebody whose knees are giving out. They, they just can't seem to stand. And what he's describing in this imagery is what we would call discouragement. Now, my friends, look around. There are discouraged people who need a word of encouragement, who need your help, your strength, our goal. You say, well, what about me? (laughs) Well, that's our problem. We have this what about me mindset. No, what about them? May God help you and me to live our lives, to do what we can, to ease their burdens, to strengthen weak hands, to confirm feeble knees, to say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong and fear not, behold, your God will come. With vengeance, even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. Now he's describing a time of revival or spiritual renewal when the Messiah comes. This 35th chapter of Isaiah is a messianic prophecy. It predicts the coming of the Messiah. And of course, through Jesus Christ, there is revival. The lame leaps as a hart. The ears of the deaf are unstopped. The tongue of the dumb shall sing. Part of our role in serving Christ is to say to those whose hearts are fearful, Be strong and fear not. That is to encourage them. Your God is coming. He will come and save you. Point people to the Lord. That's the way to encourage the weary. You say, I don't know how to encourage the weary. Do I go to a sister so-and-so that's kind of discouraged and say to her, oh, cheer up, you're good looking. No, you don't encourage people by flattering them. Say, oh, you're a very important person. No, you don't encourage people, my friends, that way. You encourage them by pointing them to the Lord. Remember who your God is. Your God hears your prayers. Your God is with you. He said in His Word, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that you may boldly say the Lord is my helper. You see, you point people to the Lord. That's the way to lift up the hands that hang down. And to confirm the feeble knees. That is to put a knee brace on somebody else. There are people around you who need encouragement and you're just the person to help them. That's what I'm telling you this morning. Living with a corporate focus secondly involves considering the influence your example has on other people. Verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. Now notice this. Make sure that you walk in a straight course so that you don't negatively influence somebody else. Listen to the language again. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame would be turned out of the way. Do you know what he's telling us here? Your example, the way you live, the way I live, influences other people whether we know it or not. That's exactly what he told us back in the 10th chapter of Hebrews when he said consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. He's saying by coming to church, by trying to live a godly life, by serving Jesus, by having and maintaining a good attitude, come what may, other people will be influenced by your good example. Likewise, if I lose my temper, if I get discouraged and disheartened and begin to blaspheme the Lord, if I grow worldly and secular, it will weaken other people. So he says, make straight paths for your feet. You walk in a straight path. Don't just wander all over the place, but you live a certain way. He says, lest that which is lame The halting would be turned out of the way. So if you and I are going to live with a corporate focus, it means we get involved in administering and encouraging the discouraged. And it means that we consider the influence that our example has on other people. For no man lives to himself or dies to himself. Says 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And therefore, be sure that no man casts a stumbling block in the path of his brother Cause him to stumble. Thirdly, the third area in which this corporate mindset should translate into our lives is in verse 14. He says, Make the practice of unity in the church and your personal purity the priority in your life. Listen to this follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, the word follow in this verse means to pursue. Just like a predator pursues a prey. He's following the prey. So you and I are to pursue peace and holiness. Follow peace with all men and holiness. Peace and purity. And the joining of these two words in this verse suggests to our minds that the writer is probably thinking about Beatitudes number 6 and 7 in Matthew chapter 5. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus gave the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn. Beatitudes 6 and 7 are these. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. Follow holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. You see the connection? Purity of heart, holiness, and this will produce a sight of God, a vision of God. And then the next beatitude is blessed are the peacemakers. So you've got purity and peace. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. It's evident that verse 14 is a reference back to Matthew chapter 5 and the 6th and 7th Beatitudes. What he's telling us here, my friends, is the priorities in our life should not be just my own personal happiness, but it should be to try to promote the unity of the church as much as possible and my own personal purity. Follow peace with all men. Now, I dare say that's not easy, because there are some people who won't let you live in peace with them. But God's people should be known for being peacemakers, not warmongers. Jesus did not say, blessed are the warmongers, but he said, blessed are the peacemakers. My friends, I've had enough strife and tension in my life to want peace in my home, to want peace in my community, and especially to want peace in the church. I want people to love one another, to exercise a certain degree of charity with each other. Now, being peaceable does not mean that we tolerate sin. It does not mean that we say, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe or how you live, that anything goes. No, Ephesians chapter 5 teaches us in no uncertain terms that walking in love does not mean that we tolerate sin. For he says walk in love as christ has loved us and the very next verse says and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness that is don't even flirt with it don't have anything to do with it for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret being loving doesn't mean that i refuse to take a stand on any moral issue in fact the more we love god the more we will stand firmly and say thus saith the word of the lord you know, th- this idea is very popular in our society. Somebody says, if you are truly loving people, then you won't ever say that the way they're living, their particular lifestyle choices are wrong or sinful. That's just their individual right. Somebody says, well, he has an alternate lifestyle. This person's living an alternate lifestyle, and what right do you have to say that that's wrong? The word of God, my beloved, says that marriage is honorable in all and the beds undefiled but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. And therefore, somebody says, well, you're not promoting peace. You're not being very loving if you take a stand on those issues. Well, the first commandment is not love thy neighbor. The first commandment is let us love our God supremely. And sometimes loving God means taking a stand where other people think you're being unloving, but yet I'm standing up for what's right in the sight of God. But at the same time, my friends, we should always speak the truth in love. And that means that as much as is possible, we should live peaceably with all men. Now, I cannot have fellowship with ungodliness. I cannot say that gay marriage is correct, and I I can't endorse it. I cannot say that some of these social hot topic, hot potato issues in our society are legitimate, but as much as is possible, live peaceably. And when it comes to the church, even though we have our own rough edges and our own personalities that rub each other the wrong way, you know, sometimes God's people are like porcupines. You get a little close to them and you get, you know, it's kind of prickly. We all needle each other sometimes, we get on each other's nerves. We're like a family. And have you ever known a family where all was peace and love 24-7, 365? No, they have their tensions. Families have their crises and their moments of disagreement and tensions. So do churches. My friends, as much as possible, every one of us should be peacemakers in the church. That means doing what we can to protect the unity, to guard the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace, as Ephesians chapter 4 tells us. I don't want to be a troublemaker. Somebody says, well, if you take a stand for a certain position, then... But we need to decide, is it a very important position or is it just a peripheral matter? We need to learn to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials. But the point is, peace should be a priority. The peace of the church should be a priority. Sometimes I say things that offend people. And when it comes to my knowledge, I try to go to that person and say, listen, that was not my intention. I'm so sorry. I must have misstated. I said it wrong. I didn't intend anything. Please forgive me. You say, well, you don't have to do that. I I do if I care about the peace of the church. You see, I want to protect the unity of the body. Because I'm living for something bigger than myself. That should be our goal. And then holiness, without which no man should see the Lord personal purity. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But we move on now to the fourth thing that he mentions here, which has to do with being on guard against the threats to the health and integrity of the church. You notice the word lest in verses 15 and 16. If you have your Bible open, Hebrews 12, look at verse 15 and 16. Three times he uses the word lest looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up um, and among you and trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator. Here are three serious threats to the health and integrity of the church that we all need to be on guard against. First is the threat of false teaching looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of god now the word fail if you have a marginal reference in your bible you may see that it says fall fall from grace and somebody says just a minute brother mike i didn't think you primitive Baptists believed you could fall from grace we don't in an eternal sense the bible teaches us that we are eternally preserved in the lord jesus christ we're secure in his love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No one can pluck the sheep from the good shepherd's hand. He holds them securely. You can't lose your salvation. You're right. We can't fall from the relationship of grace. That is, God will never stop loving us. He will never stop being our father. You'll never quit being a child of God if you're one of his. My friend, you can fall from the truth of grace, Galatians 5.4 says, whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. What does he mean? He means you folks in the churches of Galatia who are flirting with the law again, you're trying to go back to the law. He says, if you do that, if you embrace your works, man's works, you've fallen from the truth of what grace is all about. You've fallen from grace. He doesn't mean they've lost their eternal salvation, but he means they've lost their focus and they've lost the joys and privileges and the assurance of God's sovereign grace in their hearts. And my friends, you could lose that, and I could too. So he says, Look diligently lest any of you fall from grace. He means be careful about the threat that false teaching like legalism poses to the church. And notice he says, looking diligently, lest any man. That expression, any man, teaches us that each individual in the church, each and every one is a precious treasure. So we need to be careful to try to save as many as we can. I don't want even one to fall by the wayside because they've been deceived by false teaching or false ideas. You know, we're exposed to so many ideas in our daily lives that are contrary to the Word of God. And sometimes it makes inroads into the thinking of God's children. And we need to be ready to go after those that are being influenced by some smart professor or some editorial that they've read or some idea that is promoted in secular culture or by some religious teacher. We need to be ready, my friends, to get involved, even though it means discomfort and sometimes confrontation. Yet he says, look diligently. Be on your the lookout lest anyone fall from the grace of God, from the truth of His grace. This is what um, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 is talking about when he says, My brethren, if any of you err from the truth, you that are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. He he means if you see a brother or sister wandering, you go after that one and try to mend the broken bone. The word restore has that connotation, to mend a broken bone. He says you go after that one and restore them in the spirit of meekness. Not in a belligerent way saying, uh, I would have never done what you... He says you go to them humbly and understanding how it could happen to any of us, but you go to them in love and try to recover them. By the way, James tells us that he that recovers a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. you believe in soul saving? I do. I believe in saving the souls of God's children, my friends, who are being taken captive by this world, trying to snatch them out of the fire. Jude says it like this. In Jude verse 22, I think it is. Of some have compassion making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Every little lamb is important in the good shepherd's fold. Even Jesus left the ninety and nine and went after that one that had wandered, right? You say, well, what's one in comparison to the rest of the flock? Every single one's important. Looking diligently lest any man fail. You see, we're living for the good of the church. We're thinking of the corporate body. We're thinking, my friends, of the health and integrity of the collective church of Jesus Christ. So be on guard against the threat of false teaching. Be on guard against the threat of destructive attitudes, verse 15b, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. Now, notice this, the poisonous root in the soil, you didn't know it was there and suddenly it begins to sprout. It springs up. It germinates. Have you ever seen something come up in your some poisonous root, some noxious weed in your yard or in your garden, and you thought, I wonder where that came from? That root's been there for a while, but you see, suddenly it springs up. The conditions are just right where the root springs up. It germinates. And it says, and many be defiled. He says, the root of bitterness, a bad attitude. Here's a threat to the peace and the health of the church, not only false doctrine, but the threat of bad attitudes. It can crop up. It can raise its ugly head in our hearts. You know, the spirit of unforgiveness, if we're not careful, can raise its head. He says, be on guard against any root of bitterness that springs up and troubles you and thereby many be defiled. I want to tell you that bitterness is one of the most destructive attitudes a child of God could have. Ephesians 4:26 and following says, that we're to put off bitterness and wrath and clamor and evil speaking. And he says, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Somebody once said bitterness is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. It just doesn't work. I love a quote by Amy Carmichael who said, there is only one way of victory over the bitterness that comes naturally to us. And it's to will what God wills. That alone will bring peace. And then finally, the church is threatened not only by bad attitudes. In one person, the root of unforgiveness and bitterness springs up and it spreads. Others are defiled by it. That noxious weed takes over the garden. So we need to guard against that because we're concerned about the church the threat of false teaching where people begin to fall from grace they fail of the benefits of and the truth of the grace of god the third threat in this passage is the threat of immoral conduct verse 16 lest there be any fornicator or profane person as esau my beloved Fornication is the general term for sexual sin in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word pornea, from which we get our word pornography. Now, I want to say sex is not sinful if it's in the context for which God has given it. As the next chapter, Hebrews 13, verse 5, verse 4 is going to tell us, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed is undefiled. That's the context in which sex is legitimate, and not only legitimate and lawful, but it's actually encouraged. It's healthy between a husband and a wife. But he says outside of the commitment of the marriage covenant, it will bring pain and unhappiness, and it will bring long-term consequences of the judgment of God. And he says be careful lest the threat that there be any fornicator or profane person in the church, anybody who's living in fornication, he says, whenever that happens, that will bring upon you great judgment and heartache. The threat of immoral conduct is something that we should be on guard against when it comes to protecting the health and integrity of the church. And by the way, immorality has a blind spot. Sometimes when I'm driving down the road, I'll start to change lanes and somebody will honk at me and I'll think, ooh, there was a car in my blind spot. Has that ever been your situation? Well, immorality, the person who's living an immoral life has a blind spot. They don't see things clearly. And he cites Esau as the example in this passage, as an example of immorality's blind spot. You see, a person commits fornication, immorality, because they lose sight of the long term. They fail to see the big picture. They can only see the pleasure of the moment. Just like Esau, who sold his birthright, his future, for one bologna sandwich, for one morsel of meat, for one bowl of soup. He sold his future inheritance for a present satisfaction of a good meal. That's the blind spot, my friends, of the immoral person that he talks about in this passage. Now, the cause of Christ is the most important cause in this world, as we've stated. May God bless each one of us this morning to know the joy of living for something bigger than ourselves. To know the fulfillment of serving a cause that is larger than the individual. May we learn to live with a corporate and collective focus, thinking about the cause of Christ more than about me. That's my prayer. Today, in Jesus' name, amen.